people, welcome to Private Equity Laid Bare, the podcast. Today, my guest is Oni, who's just written a book called Adventure Finance. Who thought that finance could be adventurous? Um, so Oni, thank you so much for uh, joining us. And can you tell us what's in this book? Sure. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here, Ludo. So adventure finance is really about exploring what financial options you have as a startup or as a funder of a startup or a small business. And the reason I wrote it was because what I've seen in the past 15 years of working with small businesses all over the world and with funders all over the world is that people still look at the same three boxes. So they look at debt, they look at equity, and they look at grants. And those are what they think that they have from an option perspective. And so I really wanted to create a full spectrum. So I talk about this like, like you have Alice in Wonderland. My, my theme is the Wizard of Oz. So she steps out of her, uh, out of the house and it's all black and white. So I say that's debt and equity. She steps out of the house and there's all this color. And so what I really want people to see is that there's a whole spectrum of options that you can choose that are really aligned to the type of business that you want to run or fund. But venture capitalists are already using all kinds of like very fancy and twisted and to my taste, overly twisted uh, clauses, right? They have all these preferred shares that will multiply by two and then guarantee X and then do that and this. And usually it's just a way to like screw people more than anything else. So like it's already complex enough, like, you know, maybe there is a there is a virtue to stay to debt and equity. And so in in, in a sense, what I'm asking you is, these more complex things already seem to exist, right, in the venture capital world. So there's more complexity, but I'm not necessarily saying for more complexity. It's more about, I actually, the book is written, it's a series of stories, and it's really written for anyone to pick up. So if you don't have any background in finance, you can pick it up and understand what, if you want to, you can understand what a safe is. I do start out with some of some of those, but it's not about more complexity necessarily. It's about understanding what your different options are and what the implications of them are. And I try and simplify, maybe to the detriment sometimes. I, you know, it's always hard to simplify, but I really do try and simplify the structures into options that are that have a reason for them. So talking about something like a mezzanine structure and why a mezzanine structure with some variable payments, some sort of upside would make a lot of sense for some types of organizations or funders, or why, and we'll talk about this you know, today, why things like redeemable equity or revenue-based financing is actually a better option for some funders. So it's not about adding additional complexity. It's actually about saying there are options that exist that can cater for the type of business you want to run. What I find in all of my work with entrepreneurs, and I did 160 interviews for this book in addition to all the other work that I do, is that a lot of entrepreneurs just don't feel heard by the system. They go out and they pitch their business. And because it is not a asset light, technology-abled business by a white male that has graduated from an Ivy League school, they don't feel like they fit in the world of risk capital because they can't get venture capital. And so what I really wanted to show was that there's different types of risk capital that you can find and hopefully funders can create. And this world can be much bigger than just those very simple um, traditional types of VC. 
That sounds cool. So would you have an example of, of, of something that, you know, that would fit this profile that wouldn't have happened in a normal venture capital world and, and, yes. and happened and you cover in your book? Yes, absolutely. So I'll start with the one I started out with in the book, um, which is called the, the Creative Artist Network. So it's CAN is the name of it. It's actually the two guys that created the Obama poster, you know, the famous yeah. Obama poster. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they wanted to create a platform whereby different creative individuals could come and be able to sell their work. Now, this is this is a big market, but it's not a huge market. So when they were going in and they were pitching, they wanted it to be ultimately, you know, owned by these creatives as well. So they were going in, they were pitching, they had great traction, they had actually done quite a bit of revenue um, to these to the VCs. And they were like, yeah, this is, you know, at least a 50 or $60 million market. And the VC is just eyes glazed over, right? This is, they need a billion dollar market to be able to, you know, think about this. And they also, the ethos of these founders too, was that, listen, we don't want to grow at all costs. We actually want to find ways that our community is engaged and that they make that the community that's contributing this artwork also does well. We don't want to create a system where we're trying to essentially maximize how much we take from these artists so that they won't continue to contribute. And so for them, they went and they pitched, uh, according to their memories, they pitched over 50 VCs and they actually live out in San Francisco. And they just got no, 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 no. And they just, you aren't fit for the, for the venture capital model. So they ended up running into, via an introduction, a company called Purpose Ventures, which is a early stage a company, early stage funding company. They don't call themselves a VC, but an early stage funding company. And they're really keen on this idea of collective ownership. And so they suggested a model for them that essentially is an investment model whereby they do buy equity essentially into the business and provide them with risk capital, but they have the opportunity through dividends to repurchase that equity over time so that they can transition to a a community ownership, not just employee, but a community ownership so that the artisans that are actually contributing their work can own part of the platform in the long run and they can run the business in the medium term to be able to essentially repay this risk capital at a rate that would correspond to a very decent venture capital return but you know, with the idea that they don't necessarily have to push themselves to go exit or to raise additional equity capital, so it works for them. The founder, the funder, you know, if if the company you know succeeds in its projections, will make a kind of twenty percent ish return on, from an IRR perspective. Okay. No. So so and so usually, I guess the, the, these all the structures you are promoting is it like usually like more in order to have impact or something that is like more social, like what you just described, or it could be that also in a pure profit-seeking setup, just having some more imagination um, in, and more flexibility in the structure can also be helpful. Or is it the case that if it is commercially better, they will have all kinds of twists anyway. That's not the problem is when we are trying to ch- achieve something other than pure profit maximization, that we need to look at different structures. So this is a great chance, Ludo, you knew we'd get into this at some point between the two of us. Um, Is it possible to just be pure profit 
maximization in this in this day and age would be my first question. Um, and I think we've seen how sometimes that goes. But then my second answer for that would be absolutely one of the things that is really important about these types of structures is actually for founders that are historically underrepresented. So I talk to a lot of um, women founders, of founders um, from minorities within countries that do not find themselves able to access venture capital based off of the kind of network idea and also potentially not yes some of them are you know I as you know I do impact investing so that is my area but you know some of them are just in in really interesting in industries. So let me give you an example of a um, an entrepreneur in, in the States, um, a black woman, an incredible entrepreneur, realized that that her being able to access black hair salon solutions was just impossible and saw a big opportunity, a relatively big market, and the ability to actually um, to penetrate this was, was, was high. But she pitched this idea of basically having mobile salons that were and um, it's, a, it's a whole the whole platform of kind of black hair company um, for particularly for black women. And the thing that she saw when she was pitching this to VCs was they just they didn't understand the opportunity because no one sitting in that room had ever had any yeah. experience with black hair. And so the VC she ended up going with was a VC that does do use these types of structures and actually worked better for her because she she was like this is a pro, you know it's a profitable business we need some risk capital but not planning on raising five other rounds you know maybe we sell at some point but we don't want to be pushed towards that so it worked out really well but what she said is that the VC she ended up using which is a company called Earnest Capital in the states was just so much more willing to do the research to understand what this market was that they'd never heard of. And so I think that, but, yeah. Sorry, but was it, but was it that these, you know, that, that can happen all the time. Like, you know, you know, you have a bunch of people who have no idea about the market. And so when you find a VC that doesn't understand the market and you go with that VC. So was it just that, or was there a financial structure that worked better for that company that the other people are not using? Was it some innovation also in the financing? It was both. Yeah, it was both. What and, you know, innovation a... was there in the financing? What was, what was the big aha? Well, so it was actually very similar to the one I described earlier. This one he calls a SEAL, which is a shared earnings agreement. Um, so essentially what, what they do is it's, it's almost like a safe where you essentially purchase the right to equity within that, um, that right is, is repurchased based off of um, earnings from the, that it's, it's a, he creates a calculation that is minus essentially the cost to the founder. And then um, there's a share, there's a share agreement of the earnings. And then if there is an additional right round raise than like a safe that will convert at that next round. But the entrepreneur has the right to essentially repurchase that right. It gets a little confusing there, but it's essentially like the, if you think about like a, um, a set of Legos, they can pull pieces of those Legos off so that if they do end up going and raising another round of funding or an equity round of funding, only the Legos that remain are the ones that will convert into ownership. But it, means, so, it means less money for, for, for VC compared to a traditional VC because a traditional VC that would have seen this opportunity would have financed it in a normal way and put back their normal clothes and they would have made more money uh, than this VC that accepted that deal. So aren't we here on the territory of what we would call like philanthropy, venture capital philanthropy more than like classic venture capital? 
This is a great question, Ludo. Set me up for a perfect example of why, why we need to completely rethink the venture capital portfolio. So, so no, actually, this VC, and I think um, Tyler, the, the Tyler Trinagos, the, the guy who runs this uh, VC would be absolutely like horrified if you thought that he was looking for um, less return, but it's, it actually comes down to portfolio construction. So what I found with, particularly in this area with these kind of redeemable equity structures is that what the founders, um, sorry, what the funders are trying to do is they're trying to create very different portfolios. So instead of having a portfolio whereby two of the deals are expected to go to the moon and do 10 times return and the rest of them are expected to kind of do okay or, or, or just fall by the wayside, these VCs are putting together portfolios where they're expecting three to four times return from each investment. And some of that will be um, returned much quicker as well. So from an IRR perspective, I mean, if you don't, don't worry, we do not have to do the IRR discussion here, but from a liquidity and a risk perspective, they're actually going to, that money is going to be returned earlier. And so what I am seeing the funders do is play around with that a bit. So for instance, they might not allow the entrepreneur to buy back the entire number of shares. So they might only allow them to buy back 50% of the shares and they do it over the first seven years. And then they keep that right. So that if the company does go to the moon, then they do participate in that upside, but then they get some of the liquidity up front. Um, so there is- I, I so can understand these... why, why you don't have a two going to the moon, because if you share with the entrepreneur, then you will not have a two going to the moon, okay? But I do not understand why on the downside that gives you any protection. So I understand on the upside, right? On the upside, if you say, you know, I, I, I share any benefits with the people I'm financing, then yes, I'm not going to have as much, you know, big home runs. But on the downside, then you should still have the same downside as before. If a business doesn't work, it doesn't work. And 90% of what venture capital finance doesn't work because young businesses die at a pretty high rate. So it's a very different, it's also looking at a different type of business. Um, so these are, you know, not necessarily exponential growth at all cost businesses. And that's what I hear from a lot of these founders that again, like I described before, and even this um, founder with the hair company, I mean, she, you know, she said she was going to grow a company sustainably and responsibly. And she, she wanted to, which meant she was going to focus on revenues. So she wasn't necessarily going to grow to 100,000 users without any revenue. She wanted to build a company that was focused on revenue. So what I'm seeing is that there's a whole set of founders out there that are actually being, I would say, much more responsible and focusing on making money before they focus on flooding the market with, you know, as many people as they can get to be able to sign up for their app. And then they need as much growth capital as they can to be able to subsidize that. So it is a bit of a difference in how a lot of these organizations are approaching how they're going to build their companies. They okay, may not so get to it. But the, the, the thing I wanted to stress again is that these portfolios, the average, when you're looking at a VC portfolio and you're doing the average across that, a VC portfolio is looking for about 2.5 times return and over the life of their fund. And that is because they're gonna have two that are gonna do exceptionally well and the rest of them are gonna fail. So if you're looking at an average of three to four times return for all of your companies and a couple of those do fail, you are still gonna hit you potentially a very similar type of return from a multiple perspective. I'm not talking IRRs here, a multiple perspective. And from a risk perspective, hold on, from a risk perspective, you are getting money earlier. So even if the company does fail, there is some liquidity that potentially happens because these are revenue generating companies and they are starting to pay you out earlier, potentially. Yeah, so if I can try to rephrase it, could I classi uh, classify this as you invest in a business that has limited upside mm -hmm. compared to you know, investing yes. in, in the next Google. 
uh, but it has limited downside because, you know, it's doing something, you know, there are all kinds of people that would need the kind of hair services you described, right? Actually yeah. quite a lot of them in the US. And so, yeah. you know, you, the downside is limited and the upside is limited. Hmm. Um, but then indeed, then you can say, well, and so venture capitalists are not too excited by that um, because they want this max volatility in a sense because for their compensation and everything, and, you know, their own ego, uh, they, they prefer things that are more uh, fancy uh, or more volatile. And, but then one could say slightly cynically, not that I am a cynical person, but- Of course not. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but in fact, it's not so bad then to give up some of the upside in a way you just described if uh, business has limited upside, right? So if I were financing Google and say, oh, don't worry, you know, if it's going well for you, you can just like keep and rebuy the equity and so on. It's like, you know, we all uh, happy family. Um, here, in a sense, like you say, yeah, I'm, I'm giving this nice deal, but on the upside, they can buy back and, and so on and so forth at, at good conditions, but there isn't limited upside anyway. So it's not like, you know, I'm giving the moon. Is that, is that fair or is that like too cynical? Um, I don't know that it's too cynical. I think it, it depends. Again, this is, it's a strategy. And I think this is where, you know, I call it venture financing. So that's why I add venture financing. So it's venture financing. It doesn't necessarily have to be VC, but I do think that it's an option for some VCs. Um, and so I think that it can be applied. What I, the interviews that I did and the entrepreneurs and the funders that I've engaged with over the past few years, as I've been investigating um, and even I've done a couple myself as an angel investor as well, is that I think it's, so some of these companies, yes, they do have, you know, maybe they're not, they're not going to be, you know, the next Google, but how many companies are going to be the next Google? So almost it's more realistic in some ways in saying that, you know, this company could do exceptionally well. And that's why I was saying you can play around with it. So I am seeing funders play around with, you know, for instance, only being able to repurchase half of the shares. So that they do keep this this right out, but would it, but if half the shares are repurchased and they're repurchased at two times, and you're doing that for your whole portfolio, then in the end, what you're left with potentially after you know eight years or something is that you've gotten two times your portfolio back, but you have all these options essentially for this upside, and and some of them won't be good, and some of them will, and so I think that it is in some ways, it's a less gambling approach to risk capital. It, it is a bit more of a kind of realistic understanding that yeah, no, if I you bet on deeper, slightly riskier, I, slightly I, less risky businesses, yeah. I think deeper as well, I would say. So you, 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 you may be surprised, but this resonates with me a lot more than you may anticipate. When, when, <laughs> okay. when I teach things like, like limited partnership agreements, uh, debt packages, negotiations, one of the key takeaway is that people tend to be very mechanical. So for example, I have his role play on limited partnership agreements without giving the answer of his role play. A lot of the students see that this LPA doesn't look standard. It's not a 220. And so they immediately say it needs to be 220. Okay, that's yeah. standard, right? And they don't think for a sec that actually this fund is actually not a standard fund. It has, it has actually a pretty weird different strategy. Um, and for that strategy, what is in this LPA is not that stupid, but it does look unconventional. And so the students, if the first thing they do is that they want to turn back to conventional and they haven't thought about, well, doesn't that make sense given like yeah. how this one is? Um, and so I think this is hitting a deep point, which is same with these entrepreneurs. When they come and say, you know, I, I have a hair salon strategy, look at it and say, yeah, no, no upside, I'm paid on a carry, doesn't fit the model, that's it, I, 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 I don't take it. And like, 
that cannot be the market. Like there, there's got to be a market for an investment in a perfectly reasonable business. Um, and, and so you just need to apply a different structure than the one that you're just currently applying. So, so I actually like that a lot. And, and um, I also have some papers that maybe are a bit more technical, but like on security design and, and, and the like, which are like theoretical papers about how you, you solve uh, um, uh, security design. So it's like, if you mm -hmm. are in a situation, what is the best security you design to address the, the, the specific uh, problem? So one of the uh, papers we have now coming out is about when um, somebody is selling you a company, you're not sure whether it's good or not, and you're quite confident about that you're going to make it much better, then the best way is not to have the seller retaining equity because you think your equity is going to worth a lot because you're going to do so well with the company. So in fact, you're asking the seller to take a debt claim in the company. Interesting. Um, when you're moderately optimistic because you say, I'm not giving you any claim on this company because I'm going to do well with it, but I don't want any skeleton uh, in the yeah. cupboard. And so we show exactly what kind That's of debt claim you would have, how it would be structured, uh, it would be backed by, it would be non-recourse because you'd be only on the business being sold. You wouldn't merge it with your existing company, the sellers. So we work this out mathematically and show that this is like a unique equilibrium. Any earnouts yeah. or things like that wouldn't work as well and so on. So I like that a lot to think like, you know, to think more deeply about what is the exact economic situation here. And instead of applying recipes blindly, um, which is a, a bit of a theme in this podcast, we talked about valuations before and so yeah. on. But again, people just have a recipe and say, I take comparables, uh, you know, that's capital IQ telling me these are comparables. I took an average and the average was X. And so that's it. I multiply earnings by X and I'm done. And then can draw a very nice football pitch for you where I put these things on and it are going to look very fancy and shiny. And here we go. We have a valuation. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I like that a lot. Um, do you have like yet another example? I'm quite hungry uh, for, for, for examples. One of the cool examples that would be in your book, your, your next favorite one. Ooh, I can't, it's hard to pick a favorite. There are, there are so many. It's like your children, um, they're all equally uh, nice. Okay. <laughs> um, but one that's a little bit, well, that's a little bit different, I'll say, is um, one in the agricultural space. So there's, um, it's the, a founder, a female founder who, I mean, I try and, I try and highlight quite a lot of female founders in the book. You, I don't know if you noticed that when you were reading it, um, but female founder who actually saw a big opportunity for organic cocoa sourced um, from Latin America um, to bring in. So there's, there's currently essentially a lot of the, a lot of the countries, this was you know, 10 years ago when she first started, but a lot of the countries have a single buyer um, that's an international buyer that will buy the, um, the cocoa and they buy it um, raw. And so then all of the, um, all the value add um, goes to the, the cocoa buyer and they buy at low prices, et cetera. So she saw an opportunity to create a premium cocoa company. And um, so and she just started in Belize um, and started growing the company. And at the time when she was growing it, you know, she was really focused on particularly these women um, and other farmers and, you know, really helping them to create more value for themselves and, and didn't see this as a equity company. And so she was really struggling to get the risk capital she needed to be able to expand to a couple other countries because it was still a very risky business. It was seen as very social. Um, she couldn't get debt and she couldn't pay back debt because it was, you know, agricultural and there was lots of seasonality. And, and things, sorry, and things like, like Kiva, for example, wouldn't have been oh, like, much, like... She needed a million dollars. So she need, sorry, she needed $300,000. Much, way too, way too... too big um, for, Kiva for will any do. Uh, microfinance. Yeah, but, and, but Kiva, I mean, you know, interesting to the farmers, but for her, she needed $300,000, you know, at the... At and the why the banks level. wouldn't be interested in that? 
Oh, it's, it's far too early for a bank. I mean, because you have, she didn't have enough like stability of revenues, and so they wouldn't. Be yeah, and it's you know she would, they don't have flexibility either. The banks, right? They no. cannot say you know no interest for the first five years and then exactly. so on. Like they wouldn't write contracts like that. No, no, banks are. I mean, banks need to be able to do better contracts, more flexible contracts. But no, they just this is not. It was not a good bank. It was like it would have put far too much pressure um, for her to be able to do that. And so ended up connecting with some funders who also allowed her to to structure a um, a note that where it was essentially a loan. And she but she paid back a multiple of that loan as part of free cash flow. So it was similar to some of the structures that you know you see from a private equity perspective, where they essentially go in, leverage the company up, and then pull the cash flow out. Very similar idea. But actually, what ended up happening, which is quite interesting, is she got the money and the support and ended up scaling the company, and the company was doing very well. It actually raised a round of equity funding. Um, from an impact investor that was very interested in the in the growth of the company. And so what ended up happening is this loan had a convertibility agreement in it. So essentially when she raised the equity, all of the original borrowers converted, but what they did is they converted at the amount she owed them, which was a multiple on the loan. So she, it was a, I believe it was, I'm not, I believe it was a three times multiple, but it was actually two times multiple, sorry. So then when they converted, they converted at the two times multiple that they had lent to her. So essentially created a premium um, and then went into the, essentially as equity holders into the deal. But when she first raised that money, she she, she didn't feel like a, an equity company. That's not the what she looked like at the time, but, you know, growing the company and then being able to find an equity partner, then those essentially debt lenders um, were willing to do the debt, a very risky debt, but with that potential upside. And so that's, but, but what that's do you a, mean by an equity company. I mean, all companies have equity, right? Sorry, a, a VC equity company. Yeah, so I a, guess a like company for profit. Can I say for profit or you say? Everything? No, no, no. She was absolutely hundred percent for profit, but this exponential growth, you know, she didn't feel like a company that was going to go from, you know, one country to three countries, to five countries, to seven countries, yeah. to, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. That's so not sometimes... what she was. In academia, we, we talk about growth versus value company. So I guess she had a value company, right? That's something that does like low, stable growth. Not very exciting. Like Walmart well, value company. I, I actually I actually have another. So in my in the book, I actually have another. I have a different kind of typology because I don't think because what it is as is often it's not that they're because they're actually super volatile and growing very fast. But a lot of funders that sit in this very early stage aren't sure about the way they want to grow their company particularly if they're committed to uh, you know to their consumers or to the oh, community yeah. that they're engaging with and so okay. for her to say i'm going to take on equity and then i'm just going to go growth at all costs you know for the next 5 oh, years and the other thing that i've heard a lot from founders that i have in, had i have interviewed is that they have seen their friends take equity funding and seen the uh, vcs breathe down their necks and they're like that's not why i started a company I didn't start a company to sit there and like be, you know, told that 20% to month on month growth yeah, wasn't enough. And, yeah. yeah. And so, and so a lot of these founders are like, listen, I want the risk capital, but I don't want the, you know, the need to grow at hundred percent a year, every year for, you know, the next five years. And as you said, so it's, it's this whole set of companies that are, are good companies. They're not, they're not going to grow at 10% a year necessarily. That's a, you know, potentially a debt company, but they don't want that to get on essentially like a treadmill. Yeah, they so want to be able to walk where they walk. <laughs> it, it, it smells like a concave function. Like, uh, well, like, like, like one put option, like where, where basically yeah. you're saying, um, I, I want to do these cocos in Belize, 
And once I would have managed to have one third of a Belize market and helped all these women and so on, then I'm God. Um, so I would just like to get from zero to one third of a market and then I'm God, right? And in a sense, there is not something like that out there. It's like, no, you need to keep growing until, you know, you choke, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, then, um, and, and, and so that's interesting. I like that too. Yeah. And, and, and we don't realize that enough. It, it, it's called satiation in economics. We, we, this is an assumption we, we, we take out at, at Economics 101. It's like there is non-satiation. Like you cannot yeah. have too, many, too much potatoes. If you, yeah, yeah, you're, yeah. you're always happy to have more potatoes. Um, <laughs> But I think that for most people, there is a point of association. It's like, if I have this, this, and this, I'm, I'm good. Um, and so, but right now I have zero. So I would just like to get to that point and, 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 and that's it. So I like that well, a I lot. Think that... Um, thank you. Thank you so much. It makes tons of sense. Oh, of course. Uh, I recommend everyone to uh, get your book, Adventure Finance. And thank you again for, for joining us. It was a pleasure to, to talk to you. Always fun to chat, Ludo. Always fun. So this was uh, Venture Financing, Laid Bear. Uh, don't forget to subscribe. Congratulations on your acquisition of one more piece of knowledge. Ciao, ciao.